Hi, I'm Nick Burns. This is Radioactive, your show for grassroots activists, for community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives everywhere. And tonight on the show, you know, going back a couple years, November 4th, 2019, was the ambush of a Mormon caravan of women and their children. This was in northern Mexico. And I'll be talking with author and investigative journalist Sally Denton about her new book, The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. It's a true crime story of this ambush and massacre of these women and a dozen or more children. But it's also a complete, and I mean complete, history of these polygamous communities, their success, the water wars, the uneasy relationship with the cartels. Uh, Pretty fascinating book, and I had a chance to talk with her. That'll be later on the show. But first, it's water, water everywhere, and Gosh darn it, not enough drops to drink. Um, Laura Jones, hi. Hi, how you doing, Nick? I'm looking forward to sharing this conversation we recorded with you and Sally. Part of our Pioneer Day coverage, we kind of like to go against the grain with what we oh, do. Yeah, a little bit against the grain with uh, these guys with five or six wives, and each wife has 10 or 12 kids. And, you know, this has been a community full of murders and mayhem for decades. But now that we killed a bunch of women and kids, it's made international news. But the men have been killing each other off for generations, with the help of the women, by the way. Um, A story originally broken by investigative journalist and Utah favorite native son, Jack Anderson, who, in fact, Sally Denton used to work for. So it's a great conversation coming up. Well, we're going to dig into these water headlines with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, of which KRCL is one of more than two dozen news outlets, community partners, arcs groups, shining a light on the Great Salt Lake. But first, I had the opportunity to talk with some folks about the Carry the Water Indigenous Healing Garden and on actual Pioneer Day this Sunday. They're inviting the community over for a community build project and taco sale, and they're calling it a Healing Pioneer Day fundraiser. So let's roll that tape and share that conversation, Nick. Great. My name is Denise Shandine. I am uh, Dene. I'm born to Hanagakni, one who walks around clan. Um, I have a relationship with the garden uh, as, I guess, a steward trying to get things going. Hi there, my name is Brooke Larson. Uh, I'm descended from Mormon settlers and a local community organizer and a friend of Danae, so I was partnering to help with this event. All right, so let's talk about this. Community Build Day and Navajo Taco Sale, aka Healing Pioneer Day. Where did this start? I'm not sure who to direct this at, um, but I'd love to hear how this came together. Danae? You know, um, Brooke came to me with this idea. Um, we, Brooke and I have done some work in the past together. And um, because we're in such a time where we're trying to heal uh, narratives about colonization and our understanding of indigeneity, um, this was a good opportunity to educate the public and also harness some support for the urban indigenous population of Salt Lake. And Brooke, you mentioned a bit in your introduction of yourself, your your family's history. How do you come to this project, this fundraiser for Carry the Water Garden? Yeah, so I'm descended from Mormon settlers. My ancestors were some of the early settlers who colonized this place. Um, And in recent years, I have a background in environmental justice organizing, and it just became clear that my role as a white person in this work was to learn about the truth of my ancestry and be accountable to that and do all I can to repair the harm my ancestors have caused. So to me, Pioneer Day isn't a day for celebration, but rather a day to to tell that truth of um, the harm that was caused. And I wanted to find a way to not just do that through narrative, but also um, through wealth redistribution and, and raising money for this garden that I think is doing really important work in our community. So, Danae, this is happening on Pioneer Day on July 24th. And is there another term you'd like that day to be known as? You know, I think the experience of July 24th or Pioneer Day um, is kind of the same. It's like Utah's... Uh, Columbus Day, 
it's a really painful day um, for indigenous people uh, recognizing what you know colonization and the relationships that settlers have had um, with land based off of their value systems you know they've put um, really extreme con and unnatural conditions on indigenous people and the ecosystems that are in constant crisis right now. It's been a while, a couple months or more, since we had you on the show for another fundraiser for Carry the Water Garden, and I know that helped you get the garden started. But tell us about the state of the garden now and what you'd like to see happen as a result of this event. You know, the first fundraiser was really important in getting things started. You know, there's a lot of sustainability that needs to be maintained at the garden. Um, we are in the process of understanding our limitations uh, with the garden um, right now. And really, we weren't able to grow much this year. Um, but I think we're just trying to get back on track. You know, it's a difficult time for a lot of people. Um, we experience a lot of, you know, stress in this world. And um, I think restoring that relationship to land is one of the best things that we can do, however difficult it is. Um, so having that continued support is really important. Um, you know, we're absolutely willing and open to accept support from settlers, um, knowing the violence that, you know, this, their occupation has. Um, but we can do that in a way that we remain fully sovereign and provide the Two-Spirit BIPOC community with a safe place to gather. Um, this year, we really want to get those things going so that next year when it comes to, um, you know, planting season and um, we can just have those things set up. Now, are you making the tacos again? Because they were fantastic last time. <laughs> what can people expect and what should they be prepared to do besides their financial contributions on July 24th at the Garden? You know, we can have conversations and hold space for these understandings. Um, we invite anyone and everyone to come and support. Um, it is an indigenous meal that kind of represents uh, survivance for us. And so um, we're going to be throwing in some beautiful indigenous food in there, um, ingredients. And so we're excited to share that with everybody and extend that, that love and medicine and reciprocity. So it starts at 9.30 on the 24th, Brooke, at 1459 South 10th West. What should folks come prepared to, to do? Um, I think Danae can speak to this as well, but um, just helping on with the garden, helping move soil, um, maybe some planting and, and other building will be happening. So as Danae mentioned, um, this is, you know, the first year and there's a lot more to do at the garden. So um, folks should come ready to get their hands dirty and also just learn and um, connect with other people in the community. Danae, do people need to reserve a seat or otherwise indicate they're coming? No, not at all. Um, just invite whoever, um, you know, we're not going to make people do a ton of work if they want to participate in in moving some earth around or um, helping build, um, do some other, doing some other tasks, they are more than welcome to do that. You know, bring gloves, bring your children. It's a very safe space. Um, there's lots of room. You will have hand sanitizer and all those things. That's a very one thing we like about the garden is it's a safe place to gather. Um, you know, with this pandemic that we're experiencing. So again, this event happening on Pioneer Day, 9.30 a.m. to 3 p.m., a community build day and Navajo taco sale at Carry the Water, an indigenous healing garden. And uh, how have folks been experiencing this? I know you said you didn't plant much this year, but you were excited to get onto the land last we spoke. Yeah, the idea around this is restoring these relationships with one another and also you know, one of the ways that we can combat a lot of the monsters that we're facing in our world, such as depression and anxiety, fatigue and grief, being separated from our land and loved ones, um, having a space that understands those fractures in our world um, and bringing people together to talk about these things in a safe way and relate to one another. Um, also, you know, being aware of 
our relationship to each other. Um, a lot of the times us, you know, indigenous people within the city, we feel displaced. Um, we're disconnected from, you know, our immediate relatives a lot of the time. And so it, so far it's been, it's been just that, you know, medicine, a place to gather um, and talk about those things. And from our assessment of those gatherings, our, our people are really hungry for that. Um, and they deserve to be in a space that is really grounded on, you know, truth telling, um, healing, um, connecting with land and restoring our relationship with water. Um, these conversations really need to happen because we're, you know, just like the Great Salt Lake, um, to be in that dire condition today, they first had to extract the indigenous people from this land. And so we just, you know, we're having those conversations and um, being real with one another. And I think that's one of the most beautiful parts about it. Danae, is there a website or social, social media that we can steer people toward? You know, we're working on that, um, but the website will be carrythewater.earth. Um, the website is not up and running right now, but and same with the Instagram. People can support by um, donating to MMI Who Is Missing. So paypal.me dash MMI Who Is Missing. Carry the Waters, Danae, Sean Dean, and Brooke Larson. And I'd just like to thank them for sharing the story of Carry the Water, this great garden on the west side, Nick, that's taking shape. And folks, Check tonight's show notes. I've got a link and details on how you can uh, show up and help on this community build. Or maybe you just want to eat some tacos and support the work they do at Carry the Water, an indigenous healing garden. Either way, they would love to see you on the actual Pioneer Day, Nick Burns. Pretty exciting. And there's so much there's so much discussion and finally some action on water. You know, we had our legislature actually contribute some money last winter towards helping the Great Salt Lake. Uh, some people are arguing that's a drop in the bucket, but it's a drop we didn't have before. But again, our friends, and of course, we're a part of this, the greatsaltlakenews.org at the Great Salt Lake Collective. A lot of really good reporting going on about what's going on with the lake, that's for sure. Is there a story that caught your eye recently? Well, gosh, on, on radioactive, it's so easy to make fun of this of this pitch about having the pipe. The idea is, well, let's just put a pipe over to the Pacific Ocean and we'll pump some ocean over and fill up the lake. And of course, you can think for about 10 seconds and realize not only is that technologically ridiculous, but of course, seawater isn't the Great Salt Lake water and animals, creatures, et cetera, not compatible. So that's ridiculous. But there are some things going on. We've talked often on the show about 80% of the water in Utah is for crops. But there is a move to bring technology. And this was a story at greatsaltlakenews.org that really caught my eye. Shout out to Ben Winslow at Fox 13, who's also a partner. He did this story about local farmers who have moved into technology costs a lot, about $300,000 for one farmer to convert to basically a system he can run his irrigation off his phone rather than all night long, a bunch of teenagers moving pipes around like it used to be in the old day. This is one particular farmer, farms, farms organic corn and some barley, so not an alfalfa farmer, but he saves one third of his water now with a system that's run by solar power and hooks up to his smartphone. So with technology, we can have floodgates and canal gates open and close based on water levels, not based on people walking around and eyeballing it. And it can make a difference, but man, it's gonna be a lot of money and a lot of effort to move over to a new system. But one farmer saving a third of his water with $300,000 outlay. And of course the, farm, the farmer had some help uh, Russell, uh, Colton Russell, rather, is his name. Um, Russell did have some help from Utah Department of Ag and whatnot, but pretty interesting story about how things could be different. That's a great story. Just one of the many that is a result of this focus from partners in the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the story by Ben Winslow and Fox 13, but also all the other great headlines. And before we wrap our kind of weekly 
um, headline conversation, Nick, Governor Cox had a conversation with another Great Salt Lake collaborative partner over at KSL. And those stories are starting to roll out this evening. Tomorrow, the Trib will have some more conversations. And we just wanted to share a bit of a clip because that's part of the collaborative. We are sharing our news collecting capabilities so we can spread the conversation a little bit farther and wider. And one of the conversations was about, or one of the questions that the reporter at KSL, Dan Spindle, uh, had for the governor, had for Governor Cox was, had for the governor was about, you know, kind of the um, the mockery that we've gotten recently from John Oliver. And so he asked about that. And here's the governor's yeah. response. Utah of late, I've noticed, has been a punching bag. National, international, wherever you look. We've been singled out as seemingly the biggest water wasters ever. Is that a fair designation? And have you been watching this, this national and international media hyper-focused on the Great Salt Lake, rightly so? Is it a fair designation to say, Utah, what's going on with you guys? You guys just waste water out there. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's a fair designation, but, but I think it is a fair criticism that we haven't been as effective as, as we should have been in the past when it comes to conserving water and, uh, and specifically the Great Salt Lake. So I think we, we should be open to criticism and that means we can do better. We, we've, we've been victims a little bit of, of, of our own success historically in that the people that came before us were really, really good at, at storing water. And so we have this incredible reservoir system. We actually had an, an abundance of water. We, we had more water than we needed for, for 175 years and it, since, since those first pioneers came. And so that, that's led us to this point where I think we got a little lackadaisical. Um, why conserve when you don't have to? We have these reservoirs full of water, we're doing just fine. Why put limits on, on the amount of water that people can use? And you couple that now with being the fastest growing state in the country and we're in this 20 year drought and that's a combination that now makes it so we don't have enough water. So we're playing catch up a little bit to some of the surrounding states who didn't have those water storage uh, reservoirs like, like we do here. And that's just some of the conversation with Utah Governor Spencer Cox. Look for the full story at 10 o'clock tonight on KSL 5, part of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, shining a light on issues affecting the Great Salt Lake. Nick Burns. Governor Cox a little defensive there, perhaps, and of course, totally ignoring all the thousands of people who lived here before white pioneers showed up. But at least the lake is getting some attention. I mean, it's about yeah. gone by half um, over the last few years. So we are beyond time to do something about it. Another opportunity here to share an episode of the podcast by our friends at uh, Utah State and the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. This is Lake Effect. I'm Margaret Pettis, and I'm a retired school teacher, currently a kayaker up the Bear River and a poet and a author of all sorts of books. Compass Points, Great Salt Lake. Above my writing desk, propped between antlers, fossils, and stones, hang two watercolors of Antelope Island. Across a blue horizon, inadequate in miniature, clouds surge eastward, climbing encrusted shores. Salmon pink playas nuzzle the sky's trembling veil south. My horse picks her way through bitterbrush and boulders to the rim of Stansbury Island. She grabs at rattlegrass, her bit dripping green foam, as the cumulus parade rolls in its untethered Great Basin floats. Hoary mammoth, pastel turtle, carousel pony, plump trout mushrooming into mermaid, snow-white anvils ascending the dome. Dark shadow islands model the Silver Lake, whisper stories from Nevada. West, our sailboat tips. We are a pelican wing skimming the turquoise cabochon of Utah sky. Cub, hat, badger, egg, rock, mud. Simple appellations for low water islands give way to Gunnison, where Alfred Lamborn slept a year in the company of one-fifth of Earth's white pelicans and all of the Great Basin's stars. Awake, he painted the pastel glimmer of the saltiest lake in our hemisphere, faced the crash of electric storms, rode the crimson cusp of the planet. 
north. Along the promontories, a band of range mares, udders nudged by foals knowing no barn, holds the gravel road with horse majority, then drifts off, permitting us to downshift and rumble toward Rosal. At the lake's edge, we shield our eyes, scan bright islands perched on the seam of sky, enter the pewter mirage at the great swirling mandala, suspended in time with crystal and basalt, we follow its silence into ourselves. Northeast. In the refuge, swallows, those mad tailors, dart under bridges, press beaks full of mud into teacup nests. Like Appaloosa spots, snowy egrets punctuate the maze of dark channels. In the shallows, herons, still as reeds, eye fish before beak strike. Mud flats crack into droughts, clay tablets, stilt, avocet, follow rope, caught in cuneiform. Wind rattles through bulrushes, Paiute shelters unbundled. In pigment and paper, I carry home each day the hues of Great Salt Lake, tucked with sage-scented fingers among a quiver of sable brushes, tufts of bison hair, a rabbit tail, and butter-bright feathers of a fallen lark. I had walked again on the brittle gray floor of our own Dead Sea. This is Lake Effect from the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Stay salty, Utah. And that's Lake Effect, Nick Burns. What's coming up next? I want to talk with, I want to share rather, my conversation with investigative journalist Sally Denton and her new book, The Colony, about the massacre of three women and a dozen or more of their children, which happened in Mexico, November 4th, 2019. I had a chance to talk with her about her brand new book, just been out for a couple of weeks, pretty thorough true crime history of this massacre, including the firebombing of one of the cars and just the murder and mayhem that this um, polygamist enclave has suffered for decades now. What do we have to get us there, though, Laura? I bet you have a song. Well, I'm thinking about the Great Salt Lake, and let's go looking for water with David Bowie. How about that? I like it. On KRCL 90.9. The need for food goes up in our community as donations drop during the summer months. Crossroads Urban Center's July food drive is underway and needs peanut butter, cereal, canned fruit, individual snacks, canned tomatoes, and more. For details, visit crossroadsurbancenter.org. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller's Subaru, a community partner of YWCA Utah and the Stand Against Racism Challenge. Mark Miller Subaru loves diversity. Learn more at ywcautah.org and markmillersubaru.com. Hi, I'm Mike of Thursday Night Psych Out on KRCL. Join me every Thursday night at 8 p.m. for two and a half hours of far-out sounds from the psychedelic 60s to the space rock of the 70s, the Paisley Underground and Gothic Psych of the 80s, shoegaze from the 90s, and the new psychedelic renaissance from the last 20 years. It's the psychedelic movement. That's Thursday Night Psych Out every Thursday at 8 p.m. Tune in, turn on, and psych out. We are back on Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns, and coming up this evening on Your Community Connection, 90.9 KRCL-FM, also online, krcl.org. It's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. That rolls at 7 p.m. right after Radioactive. Rude Awakening with Liz at 8 p.m., Maximum, and I mean Maximum Distortion with Forgash and Cody D. Check out that loudness at 10.30 p.m. And every weekday morning, 6 a.m., John Florence greets you with a brand new day. And next up, my conversation recorded earlier with author Sally Denton. Joining us now on Radioactive, investigative journalist Sally Denton. Her new book, The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land, just out about three weeks ago. This book looks at the massacre in northern Mexico, centering on some women who are a part of the fundamentalist Mormon community down there. And we want to talk about the murder, of course, but Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And your book is about far more than just this massacre. So to jump in here, 
you know, this is a true crime tale, which, of course, everybody is fascinated about these days. Um, so I won't ask you if you have a podcast, but what brought you to this project? Uh, well, no, I don't have a podcast. <laughs> but um, the book starts with the murder of three young mothers and um, and six of their children and the wounding of several others in the mountains of northern Mexico on uh, November 4th, 2019. Uh, they were traveling in a caravan, a caravan of three uh, women, three mothers and, and 14 of their children and uh, were brutally attacked while traveling through Sonora uh, uh, from these are uh, these are interrelated women, cousins and uh, relatives. And they were both from uh, fundamentalist colonies in Mexico, one in Sonora, La Mora, and one in Chihuahua, Colonia LeBaron. And my book is really about Colonia LeBaron and um, uh I, I started out this is a heinous crime and and it was um it was so horrendous and uh, you know it started out I was I was really touched by the tragedy of it I mean you know these women and children and and uh just slaughtered execution style and one of them Ronita Miller who was in the first car that that was hit. Um, there were I think 321 shell casings at the scene and a video, one of the uh, cartel, um, uh, they came under attack by Sicarios, uh, armed hitmen, and as many as 100 of them. And um, I think her car was hit by uh, 321 and one of uh, uh, bullets and then and one of the hitmen actually videotaped it and where they burned it and set it afire, which is about the most horrendous um, tragedy uh, that you can imagine. So I really uh, started, you know, uh, just wondering why were these three women and all these children alone um, on this road, one of the most dangerous roads in, in the world at the moment. And, yeah. and and when I, you know, we all saw it on CNN news when it came up and, and um, uh, you know, they were identified as dual American uh, Mexican-American citizens. And it just became very clear to me from the first reporting that these were from the fundamentalist colonies of northern Mexico, which always interested me. Um, I'm descended from a long line of, of Mormon pioneer polygamists, women and men. And um, so, and I've written uh, two books on Mormon history, including one on the uh, Mountain Meadow Massacre, Mm-hmm. And um, and I knew that even, you know, a, a lot of the perpetrators from that massacre from 1857 had gone down to the uh, northern Mexico to hide from from law enforcement in the United States. So I just kind of from the moment I heard it, I thought there's a lot more to this story um, and I'd like to get to the bottom of it and find out, you know, uh, I just kind of sought to dig deeper into not just their murders, but uh, the relationship with the long and and at times sordid history of polygamy in the American Southwest and in northern Mexico. And I want to get back to this, the notion that they were all three women massacred with a group of kids. And uh, some of the kids were told to get out of the car and ran and hid overnight and whatnot. And one of the women, of course, jumped out of her truck uh, SUV and yelled, Somos mujeres, we are women. Um, that didn't help. Um, and of course, the one car was actually firebombed. And I want to talk some more about the fact that that it was women who were massacred here, which seems somewhat relevant today. But when you write about these communities, the history here is really, it, it's probably beyond what most people who know a little bit about the polygamist, fundamentalist Mormons who fled um, these are guys with multiple wives, 50, 60, 70 children. They're all interrelated. Um, reading your book, I couldn't even keep everyone separate with all the similar names. So congrats in your research. Because <laughs> I should have had a, a quite a web of people. There. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And to figure out who was related. And, you know, I did I ended up doing a, an awful lot of genealogy, but <laughs> 
when you, you know, from the beginning, as you said, the first one, the car was emulated and the second one, Christina was, uh, Johnson was out with her um, arms in the air. Um, and so, and it was in the morning, 10 30, 11 o'clock. It became very clear early on that this was not a case of mistaken identity that, and, and that's, you know, in Mexico and everywhere, but in Mexico, when something like this happens, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories and rumors were flying and they were caught, you know, that they were caught in the crossfire between two cartels and uh, and that it was mistaken identity. And it just became clear early on that it was not mistaken identity. These women were targeted. Um, and uh, later, as you, you mentioned, uh, one of the, the third car, the first one was Ronita's, the second was Christina. The third car was Donna Langford, and she had nine of her children with her. She and two of her children were killed. And when the Car when the hitman came down to check on the car, um, the witnesses, the surviving children uh, who were old enough to understand what was going on, said that the hitmen were very upset to find that the the car was full of children, as if that part was a surprise, and told them to uh, run home, which they couldn't do because most of them were injured. But um, it was it was just clear from the start that they were targeted. And uh, so when I began, I began almost immediately after the event happened on November 4th, 2019, I started looking into it and then um, decided that it was worthy of a, a, a book subject to really delve into who, uh, what really happened, who these women were, and, um, and really to give a comprehensive portrait of a, of a very complex story and to uh, really, you know, uh, bring some kind of closure to, you know, the horrible thing that happened to these women and children. And my first question from the beginning was, where were the men? Um, these are column, as you, you know, you say, I mean, I go into depth in this. And yeah. We don't have 30 minutes, I mean, enough time to do that. But I delve into the history of why they were down there. Uh, these colonies, the col uh, Colonia LeBaron, uh, predates the cartels by by decades, by generations. Yeah, and they've lived among them in some kind of nuanced um, uh, laissez-faire relationship for decades. Um, so uh, this was, you know, and they've traveled these roads dozens of times. They were warned the night before um, about violence in the area, and it was uh, stunning to me that they continued to go forward. All three women had premonitions. Uh, reportedly reported premonitions the day before and uh, and were nervous about it but uh, felt invulnerable for some reason and um and they were used to as I said going these are sister colonies and they're related and they're used to going back and forth between these two communities and um and the patriarchal men of these polygamous communities are accustomed to traveling with uh, a high level of security. So I just, you know, I just, uh, I, I was kind of obsessed with why were these women and children alone? Where yeah. were the husbands? And the, all three husbands were in the United States at the time. Um, and I just, you know, tried to get to the bottom of that. And trying to get to the bottom of that is what led me into the entire story of the complexities of the, the uh, resource, the, um, the, the, the intricate backstory that led to this. Oh, it, yeah. And I want to ask about that because clearly this Colonia LeBaron and La Mora, they are incredibly wealthier and far more prosperous with far more water than the surrounding Mexican people. Um, and there's lots to talk about there and, and your book gets into it. But before we get too far along, I was really happy to see that you mentioned George Romney's, our own Senator Mitt Romney's father, who was actually born in one of these communities. I don't think either of these that your book focuses on, but but George Romney himself, who was governor of Michigan when I was a kid growing up in Michigan, is of this community. His forebears, you know, were among those who fled. And of course, none of the Romneys are associated with these communities anymore. No, and it's important to distinguish between them, the Romney um, and the Udalls. I mean, there were a lot of... Yeah. Um, uh, prominent American 
Mormon names who initially went went down to uh, northern Mexico to settle after the Woodruff Manifesto, uh, uh, making uh, when the United when Utah became a state and polygamy was illegal in the United States, a lot of these um, Mormon polygamists founders and uh, you know high-ranking leaders in the church who believe that um, it was an expedience by the uh, by the Mormon leader church leaders um, to abandon a principle that was central and integral to to the faith and so they saw themselves as purists and went down there and in fact a lot of the original uh, land that was purchased down there was purchased by the Mormon Church. But those, most of those people that, um, those early pioneers who left Utah and settled in Chihuahua, um, they came, most of them came back to the United States during the Mexican Revolution, um, during, uh, after, you know, Pancho Villa came in and, and swept in and basically um, all of their properties were seized and many were later then uh, turned over to the Aidos down there, which are the indigenous peoples uh, collectives. And, um, and the Mormon groups like the Romneys, there's still a significant number of Romneys down there, but those families that returned um, back after the revolution in the 20s, 30s, uh, 20s and 30s, they went back and they were mainstream members. I mean, whoever yeah. was practicing polygamy were kind of grandfathered in, but they were uh, very much um, mainstream Mormons as, and still are. Those communities are very separate. Colonia LeBaron is several miles um, south of there and was founded by a Mormon pioneer named Alma Le, uh, Dare LeBaron was founded in 1944, but then he and his sons broke away from the Mormon church and became fundamentalists. So it's a very different, you can't compare the, you know, the Romneys and the, uh, those colonies, but they're all intertwined historically. And it's a fascinating history. No. And that's what I liked about your book was, was how that history dovetails and doesn't with the more mainstream church headquartered here in Salt Lake. Um, but to catch us up to date a little bit, initially, as you mentioned, this was reported as an accident that, you know, people opened fire on these cars, not knowing who was in them. It seemed fairly clear fairly soon that that wasn't the case. But then U.S. coverage of this massacre ran into some problems when one of the spokespersons, a woman who was on CNN and a lot of media coverage here in the States, she became quite open about her upcoming plural marriage as the local Des News quoted her uh, as belonging to a, quote, unique faith. So in your research, how did that that sort of news of the polygamists and the fundamental community, how did that impact the coverage of this across the U.S.? You know, I don't really know. I thought I was really, that was Kendra Miller, who's, um, uh, Ronita was her sister-in-law, And, um, you know, she announced on CNN, I think, that she was uh, going into a a polygamous marriage. And and in fact, it was that marriage in Colonia LeBaron where all the women were going. Yeah. Ronita was on her way to to Phoenix to meet her husband and who was coming in from North Dakota, where they had been living for uh, several years. So, um, I mean, I suspected it was polygamous from the moment I saw it because the women were so young and there were so many children and uh, you know, Oh, sad, but true. Yeah. yeah, Seven children by 29 years old or whatever. So that seemed pretty obvious. I mean, Donna, you know, I think she had 14 of her 19 children with her or something. So that, that just seemed like, I didn't know if it was a factor in it Mm. or if it was just, uh, you know, one of the uh, coincidences, but it certainly factored in, in my research because, um, the, the colonies, I mean, I don't believe that the the murders and the massacre uh, had anything to do with their practicing uh, with their faith because they, as I said, have been down there for generations and have been grandfathered in by the, by. I mean, polygamy is as illegal in Mexico as it is the United States, but um, the LeBarons have been practicing it for, for decades and um, uh, without any uh, repercussions. So I didn't see that as a reason initially, of course, 
uh, when this first happened, as is, you know, as happens in Mexico and other places with something like this, there were a million rumors and conspiracy theories, you know, that the women were escaped, trying to escape polygamy, that um, that there were, uh, you know, that they were involved in um, trafficking uh, young girls that but um, it became very clear to me very early on that because of the overkill, there were 100 assassins. Uh, because of the overkill and the uh, brutality and violence of it, it seemed to me that it was a message being sent to the men and their family. Yeah. That while they were targeted, they weren't uh, the reason. Yeah, and I want to ask more about that. The book is The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. The author, Sally Denton, joining us on Radioactive today. So, Sally, these, this community, these communities, violence is nothing new. Um, again, Jack Anderson called Ervil LeBaron the Mormon Manson after Charles Manson. There's been murders in and among this community, but it's always tended to be the men, and they tend to be shooting each other over power. And of course, women are a commodity they want to own. So the violence is nothing new. But as you just mentioned, you know, killing the women, that's new and different. Well, except that you mentioned Jack Anderson, who I worked for in Washington, uh-huh. D.C., and where I really got my start as an investigative reporter. And you're referring, he referred to Ervil LeBaron, this one of the sons of uh, Almadera LeBaron, as the Mormon Manson, because basically he had his brother killed when they broke away from the Mormon church. They had all been, the boys had been, uh, the sons had been uh, Mormon missionaries. But when they broke away from the Mormon church and the uh, and then uh, Joel LeBaron founded his own church in, uh, in the 70s called the Church of the Firstborn. And they also, along the way, claimed to have the mantle of Joseph Smith as the one mighty and strong. Um, Joel was the designated prophet and Ervil, his brother, uh, began thinking that he was actually the real prophet and he had Joel killed. And it was a very violent Cain and Abel um, yeah. murder in Mexico. And but that was just the start of a huge um, uh, killing spree that uh, crossed the border into the United States in California and Arizona and in Texas uh, was referred. You know, it, it led to the murder of Rulon Allred in Salt Lake City, the murders of um Several people in in Houston, which are called, have been the subject of a book called "The Four O'clock Murders" by Scott Anderson, and um, the. Uh, but you mentioned the women. What was unique to that, and why that case was those cases were so difficult to solve, and why Jack called them the Mormon Manson. And Jack says in his memoir that he had gotten his start start as a reporter by uncovering um, a Mormon. A, a fundamentalist polygamous sect in in the fifties in Salt Lake City, but um, Ervil used his wives and daughters as assassins. So this is not the first time that women have been pulled into the violence. Yeah, it's 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 really kind of a. If you didn't know it was true, it would be kind of a strange, fascinating. Um, it would be a strange and fascinating movie. Uh, well, and also when I first started it, as I said, there were a million rumors yeah. about, um, you know, the motives. And uh, the deeper I got into it, the more it was, you know, I said to my my publisher, it was like murder on the Orient Express. I mean, you know, pick the room, pick the motive, pick the killer. You know, there was so many things at play. But one of the first things I heard uh, I was really fortunate to establish relationship with and uh, uh, inside sources within the Mormon community, within the colony itself, and and within law enforcement. And one of the very first uh, fears of uh, survivors, the victim relatives of the victims, was that this was Ervil LeBaron's old um, hit list. Uh, that the the violence of from the uh, 70s and 80s that went into the 90s that this uh, he had a hit list that long after Irville was dead he was arrested and died in prison in, in a jail in Utah but long after he was dead these murders were carried out by family members and on his hit list was every descendant of Joel the prophet uh, his brother 
And uh, Ronita, um, I mean, all of the women had various uh, relationships with the LeBaron family, but Ronita was the direct descendant. I was the granddaughter of Joel, uh, Joel the prophet. And she's so the one. Who's, up, yeah. she's, she's the one that was burned to death. Right. She's the one, the car firebombed and so on. So, I mean, this just seems, it seems crazy, but something else you bring up that I thought was very fascinating was the notion of water wars, that there actually was a LeBaron who was a water official and the LeBarons end up with a whole bunch of water. They are incredibly prosperous nut farmers and very, very wealthy. And it makes you wonder as water dries up here in the West, in the Southwest specifically, it makes you wonder if there isn't kind of a water war connection too in these yeah, murders. The, the water knife is the uh, writer called it. Uh, that was one of the first things that came up and it's just there above the surface, so to speak. Uh, there have been major clashes between the LeBarons who have massive pecan farms and live in palatial estates by comparison to the um, brutal, you know, utter poverty that surrounds them. Uh, and they're, they've been accused, they've had, uh, they've been involved politically and, uh, and they're so wealthy in comparison and have been accused of, of uh, uh, expropriating water that belongs to the, the neighboring communities, digging illegal wells. They've been, uh, there have been clashes. There are organizations, there's an uh, activist organization called the Barzanistas, which have uh, attacked the LeBaron properties uh, so this is not new. They have had the LeBarons have had ongoing battles with over water uh, for a very long time. It's all it's obviously coming to a head right now, as you mentioned, yeah. uh, thanks to climate change and what we climate change and what we see in the Southwest. I I uh, grew up in Boulder City, Nevada, and the family home is still. Uh, my mother's still in the family home overlooking Lake Mead, which is diminishing by an inch a day. And uh, with dead Bobby bodies uh, bobbing up there. So oh. this is really, I mean, as far as cautionary tales go on top of, you know, you've got the uh, Mormon fundamentalists and polygamy and, and uh, uh, gun trafficking and drug trafficking and sex cults and uh, against the backdrop of all of that, you've also got a raging water war. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint if 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 ever anyone could pick one reason these women and their kids were massacred. But you also get into ne Nexium, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, a business group. And again, we have a we have a person there who ended up in who is in jail in the United States for sex with underage girls and trafficking of women. Um, there's former President Trump's administration, which was discussing labeling the cartels as a terrorist or as terrorist organizations, rather, paving right. the way for U.S. military strikes. I mean, this is this is, you know, <laughs> I hate it's to use the word. Tentacles everywhere. Is there any way that in your work you've come to some sort of you lay this all out, Sally? So thank you. Right. But in your work, is have you come to any conclusion? Like, what would you define this? I mean, what's going on in your mind for these women to be massacred like this? Well, I mean, on top of that, which we haven't really mentioned, you know, the incarceration of uh, Joaquin Guzman, El Chapo, just a, you know a couple of uh -huh. months before this, and uh, El Chapo's reign as leader of the Sinaloa cartel in this region had kept everything relatively peaceful by comparison. I mean, once Chapo was out of the way, there are so many other cartels and and entities vying. For control of this land and this water. And as I mentioned in the book, it's not just the water, um, you know, it's not just the pecan farms, there are avocado farmers, the cartels need the water, um, the uh, tequila, the agave growers need the water, uh, the, the cartels not, I mean, you know, just not just the transportation and growing of everything, but there's, you've got, you know, the production of fentanyl and methamphetamines and the growing of poppies and, and marijuana. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a perfect storm. And any of these entities, that's why I ended up bringing all of the threads together, because as they come together and there's there's moving coalitions between people and business entities, there's billions of dollars at stake. And when uh, uh, Trump, you know, kind of uh, really 
prematurely, I mean, before there was even a cause of, uh, you know, or even a motive at the time, you know, I mean, within 24 hours tweeted that, you know, this fam, this American family had been killed in Mexico. And, and so it was time to designate the cartels as terrorist entities. So that, which is really a, a you know, a pretext and a, a precedent for the United States invading Mexico. So mm-hmm. that was added to all of the other conspiracy theories that maybe the whole thing was a, you know, a, a false flag to get America involved. And, uh, Lopez Obrador, the president, quickly shut Trump down. Yeah, and uh, but that was, you know, just one more thread that came into it all. And you mentioned earlier that that these the the colonial LeBaron and La Mora both have this sort of uneasy, ongoing relationship with the Sinaloa cartel dating back many years now. And you even mentioned that there was a fuel arrangement that that they had promised to buy gasoline, even though it was more expensive. Um, so they did have kind of a, you know, mutual understanding, if you will, with the cartel, at least before, like you say, well, for, El Chapo yeah. was arrested. For yeah. decades. I mean, you can't live. This is the golden triangle of narcotics trafficking in the world. And you can't. It's naive to believe that you could live in these communities and not have uh, a, a relationship. And the relationship, as I said, uh, seemed to be beneficial, A, as long as the PRI party was in, in power before Lopez Obrador and the Moreno party took uh, control, and also while Chapo had control of uh, the region. But um, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, uh, they go back generations. And, and, uh, and there was this reference to purchasing gasoline that seemed to be a big deal um, you know, between who was purchasing the gasoline, who were they, you know, if you buy gasoline from this cartel, we're going to kill you all. And, you know, so there's that, I mean, as a, as a potential motive, uh, which is not far-fetched because, you know, the violence down there at the moment, you know, you can uh, get massacred for looking the wrong way Mm. at a cartel member. So, you know, it's anybody's guess. Yeah, again, it's hard to pin down any one reason, but it could be a confluence of multiple. But you do mention this this notion that that I want to get to before I have to say goodbye. But that is where you write, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the one of the women jumped out and yelled at the gunman, you know, somos mujeres. Uh We are women. Didn't do any good, of course. But but as you do write, women are the commodity and the exchange rate and the women are increasingly involved in the business in a way they weren't a couple generations ago. As you said, the men are often in the United States working. All the women have their 10 kids each in their own, as you said, estate homes. But increasingly, they're taking on sort of the business role in the South. Um, Absolutely. And I I talk about that. They've always been expendable in these communities. And, um, uh, and, but now, uh, it, it's interesting. I, I go into it in the book that yeah. I kind of draw a parallel between the fact that these women have been these women and and their young uh, young men, children, sons have been holding down the fort on these massive properties while their husbands are working in the oil fields and the you know drywall and uh, tile companies uh, throughout the United States. So there's at the same moment that they're kind of rising as a matriarchy, um, that there are really powerful women within the colony. Um, at the same time, same time that's happening, um, El Chapo's uh, organization was really had really become a matriarchy. And uh, with Emma Coronel uh, Sporo, his wife, who was recently arrested in the United States, there's such a confluence and there's a inordinate amount of confluence that seems to happen out of the Southern District of New York uh, Justice Department. That's where the Ranieri case was. That's where Chapa was. That's where Emma Coronel is. That's, you know, that seems to be the headquarters of major um, uh, prosecutions of, of these things. Yeah. And I have to mention, too, with Amon Bundy running for uh, governor in Idaho currently, and these, you know, communities in Mexico are building their own or increasing the size, I guess I should say, of their own militias, that there is this sort of anti-government fever running throughout some of Colonial LeBaron, as well as here in the West, dating back, of course, 
to the sagebrush rebellion. So right. that sort of seems tied into all this as well. I think I was really stunned by um, the fact that these are these communities are supposedly so immersed in Mexican culture, but they're very much um, of the right wing. Uh, white supremacist militias of the United States, and there's uh, all of their postings on Facebook and Twitter, and you know they're very much of the the uh, uh, the Oath Keepers um, mindset and the Proud Boys, and and Ammon, um, I don't think he considers himself the one mighty and strong personally, but I know that a lot of his followers followers believe that, and mm. um, so it's a you know the parallels there are really. Um, Interesting. I mean, you know, not so surprising if you've been in the West like you have and I have. Um, I've seen the rise of the. Uh, 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 you could trace a lot of what happened on January six in the in the U.S. Capitol to the Bundy standoff. Yeah, they were all there. The you know all the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the um, uh, Roger Stone. <laughs> the yeah. <Holster> bang. <laughs> Yeah. Um, do you see do you see in a couple of minutes we have left here, do you see anything changing or what do you see changing in Colonia Liberan or La Mora in the years ahead as a result of this massacre? Anything? Um, not necessarily as a result of the massacre. There was a kind of there's a lawsuit that the families, the husbands filed in North Dakota and were recently against the Juarez cartel, which uh, some of the family members uh, believe uh, were the perpetrators of the massacre, um, and they they held a trial a couple of weeks ago, and $4 billion was, uh, a judge awarded $4 billion to the uh, Langford family, and, and but nobody from the cartel appeared, or, you know, it wasn't really a trial, it's kind of like a, you know, tennis without a net, and good luck, you know, I, I, it seems more oh. symbolic, and then on yeah. top of that, you know, just this weekend, uh, Rafael Caro Quintero was arrested, and he's the uh, mastermind of the murder of Kiki Camarena and uh, Ronita's father has maintained from the beginning that uh, Rafael Caro Quintero had embedded with the Juarez cartel and that he was the mastermind behind the massacre of the women and children. Um, well, he was, you know, arrested in the mountains of uh, uh, deep in the mountains of Sinaloa, far, far, far from the Juarez cartel. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't really, I can't really predict what yeah. might be different down there, but, um, you know, the, the colonial LeBaron, the, the patriarchs are also trying right now in a Bundy-like fashion to, uh, with their militias to um, uh, be designated as a sovereign unit within Mexico. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see anything go good. Well. Yeah, I mean, I don't see anything good coming of this with the hundreds of thousands of nut trees the water wars. Um, it just seems like this will happen again. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you see yourself following this project further? I mean, the, like I said, the book is out just a few weeks ago. Do you think there'll be more to be revealed and more to investigate? Um, uh, not by me. I think I pretty much I told the story that I wanted yeah. to tell, uh, putting it in historical context. And uh, I'm sure along the way, eventually there will be, as this happens in Mexico, usually nobody seems to go to jail, but there will be more arrests and they'll parade them, you know, yeah. on the street. And so I don't know, but I do think that uh, the the friction between the LeBarons and their neighbors is destined to increase. Yeah, that that that's, I guess, the takeaway I had from your book was what whether it's whether it's drug trafficking, gun trafficking, water, or just wealth, there's bound to be there's bound to be increased friction between the 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 there's bound to be increased increased class warfare. I guess I'd say it like that. Absolutely, and yeah. I think that one of the key things is the uh, you know as long as there's an insatiable appetite for recreational drugs in the United States and an insatiable appetite for weapons, automatic weapons in um, Mexico. Uh, that trafficking is going to continue and um, the cartels, you know, there's an endless supply of, of high caliber weapons 
that go to people who can terrorize entire regions. Yeah. I do think that uh, I'm not watching it really closely, but I do think that the new relationship between uh, President um, Lopez Obrador and Joe Biden and and the uh, closeness of uh, Ken Salazar, the ambassador to Mexico, suggests and the, the capture of Rafael Caracantero, he's been, you know, 20 million dollar bounty on his head. Um, and that was a that's a real coup for American and Mexican intelligence working together. So maybe things are moving. Well, I appreciate the optimism. Sally Denton <laughs> is the investigative journalist. Her new book just out from Live Right Press, The Colony, Faith and Blood in a Promised Land. Sally Denton, thanks for taking time to talk with us. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. That's my conversation with author Sally Denton. My thank you to all our guests on Radioactive, and we'll put all the links in the show notes. So everyone, please check that out. And if you like tonight's show, you want to share it, you can listen on demand with the KRCL mobile app, wherever you get your apps, or of course, easily stream online from Radioactive Archives under the Community Affairs tab at krcl.org. My thanks tonight to executive producer Laura Jones. I'm Nick Burns. Next up, Democracy Now!